Welcome back. This is the second hour of Truth Jihad Radio. I'm Kevin Barrett doing this live show every weekend here on Revolution.Radio, the ultimate in free speech radio networks. Please support Revolution.Radio. And don't forget to support TruthJihad.com, otherwise known as KevinBarrett.Substack.com. Let's get into the same debate that we had last week, but from a slightly different perspective. Last week, Ron Unz of the Unz Review, that's U-N-Z dot com, definitely a leading light of alternative media, was on talking about his latest article, which has now had a follow-up article arguing that very large numbers of people cannot possibly have died from the COVID-19 experimental injections, given that when you look at the death statistics, uh, the mortality stats for the uh, mRNA-vaxxed countries, you don't see any uptick when these injections are rolled out, and you don't see any uptick corresponding with the amount of injections. And indeed, uh, both cardiac mortality and working age mortality apparently uh, have flatlined or dropped, actually, in uh, many European countries during the period of the VAX rollout. So the VAX can't be killing that many people because it's statistically insignificant. Well, that's the short version of Ron's article. Now, Matthew Crawford probably has a slightly different view. He was on this show last February, arguing that his best guess of the number of Americans killed by these experimental injections would be somewhere in the neighborhood of possibly 200,000 upwards. Well, that's hardly statistically insignificant, to say the least. So let's get into what that number really would be, just how bad are these injections. Uh, so, hey, welcome, Matthew Crawford. How hey, are you, Kevin, Matthew? I'm well, thanks. How are you? I'm well, and it's good to have you back. Uh, Rounding the Earth is definitely one of my favorite substacks. Uh, you're doing really good work. Well, thanks for inviting me. Yeah, I figured you'd probably be the guy. Yeah, thanks, thanks for inviting <laughs> yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. Well, yep, yeah, I, I appreciate your, your work on a bunch of different topics. Uh, you've got the psychopathy thing down, Pat, your article on Prince Harry's unconscious admission <laughs> of his own psychopathy in this new book was fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Or, uh, or his, but let, let's start or, out. Or his autobiographer's yeah. admission. <laughs> Yeah, never never hire a ghostwriter who's going to admit that you're a psychopath. That's a big <laughs> mistake. Um, so, you know, getting, getting to Ron Unz's articles, you know, I, I find them kind of eerily persuasive in that it is hard for me to wrap my mind around the possibility that these in experimental injections are killing a really, you know, like a, you know, one in a cup every couple of thousand people or anything like that. Looking at some of these countries that rolled them out and then didn't really have much happening in terms of excess mortality or cardiac mortality or working age mortality. Um, on the other hand, it seems pretty obvious that an awful lot of people have had problems with these ser very serious problems with these vaccines, and that some of the heart issues that seemingly have been afflicting. Uh, working-age Americans uh, recently look like they might very well be traceable to these injections. So how do we make sense out of this apparent paradox? Yeah, um, I, I, I've moved back and forth, and I think that, you know, anytime you put your scientific thinking cap on, you should be open to changing your mind about uh, different you know, different aspects of a theory, right? And some of them uh, I, I, I feel like I'm still right about, and some of them I've moved around on, and, and I'll try to you know, explain some of those, but, you know, I, I have a brother-in-law who, um, who had a sudden bout of myocarditis 
you know, after one of the injections and it took him a while to be able to walk around the block again. And yeah, it, it's very hard to imagine that that didn't kill some people. Right. And he's, he's only a little older than I am in his forties. Um, and I've just, I've heard way too many of those stories and it can't just be propaganda when, when you hear them in your own community, you know? Right. In, indeed. And it, it's interesting. The American statistics actually, you know, could possibly support a fairly large number of vaccine deaths. These, I'm talking about Unz's approach to the mortality statistics in that, as I told him, and he didn't completely disagree that, you know, his, his argument that because we have pretty much, uh, we had increased working age mortality in 2020, uh, 2021 and 2022, and so his argument is that, well, it starts in 2020 and there were no vaccines then. Vaccines come in for 2021 and 2022. And when it goes up in 2020 and then stays at the same level roughly in 2021, 2022, that indicates it's probably the COVID rather than the vaccines that are causing it. And my counter argument was, well, shouldn't it have gone back down since it COVID would have killed the low hanging fruit in 2020. And so that uh, that these are some of these people are the people who would have most likely died in you know, 2021, 2022. So we would expect it to go down, but it didn't go right. down. So maybe part of the reason it didn't go down was these injections. And so they might have still killed a fair number of people. And he said, well, yeah, you, you could be right on that. But let's look at these European statistics. And he then whips out the countries like France, where they actually had lower than expected uh, working age mortality uh, in 2020, 2021, and 2022. And once again, it was flat and there was no discernible movement when the injections came out. So it's, uh, it's it, the American situation does look uh, kind of suspicious, but the overall global situation makes it look like it's kind of hard to imagine that these shots are killing uh, a whole lot of people. Yeah, it's so... Uh, there's, there's a big challenge. Um, you know, one thing that's hard to, to know is is how things are, how medical information is being collected in, in a lot of nations. You know, in, um, when I think of a nation like Peru, right, this is a nation where USAID has operated for so long. And, you know, it, at this point, you know, it, 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 people don't even disguise much the fact that, it, that, you know, the CIA went in and was disguising, you know, um, programs to lower fertility rates. Right um, to to basically sterilize populations of hundreds of thousands of people. Um, we don't know what the levers of control are in Southeast Asian nations. We do know that we get the World Bank and the IMF to go around and and uh, basically you know get enough control over people's economies by you know getting them to take loans and then shorting their currency and may, you know putting whatever squeeze on them is necessary to be able to control countries in in you know very strong ways it's very difficult to shake out of you know could could that encourage countries to go along with what we do i think the answer is yes and so we can't trust their statistics and i'll point to two very specific cases that people can look up and in fact i wrote articles on them in uganda and vietnam respectively through late July, there were zero COVID deaths in 2020 in each nation. Both of them were using hydroxychloroquine, uh, uh, azithromycin, I think specifically, but you know, a, um, uh, an antibiotic and zinc and vitamins, right? And then they dropped those protocols when uh, I think it was the World Bank specifically dropped, you know, I, I think it may have been in total tens or hundreds of millions of dollars on those two countries. 
and then they stop those protocols and people start dying. And it was and it's, it's still, it wasn't huge numbers though, right? But, you know, the point is that, that there is that much control that the West has over, you know, what people do and, you know, how people record numbers. In Greece, prior to the vaccine program, it, it, they, they looked like they had no pandemic. And then right before vaccine rollout, they have this sort of uptick, but then like a mean reversion. And that, that suggests to me that maybe there were some people in hospitals that helped kind of push people off the cliff. And, and I do think that some things that nefarious have gone on. But I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of moderate. I, I'm going to tell you where my opinion's gone on vaccine deaths over time and try to explain as best as possible why. Um, I personally believe the most likely, if, I, if, if you wanted me to, to put a best guess, I'd put wide error bars on it. But if I had a best guess, I'd say 125,000 Americans have died from vaccination. And note that this number almost exactly perfectly fits um, where the uh, German um, health insurer uh, I don't know if you recall this story. About a year ago, a German health insurer came out and said, we interviewed hundreds of thousands of people, and we think that the vaccines have killed 31,000 Germans. And then immediately he was terminated, and within you know, a couple of days, his, his um, you know, paper was pulled offline. And um, I, I think that was PKK, maybe was the name of the insurer. You know, it was a major insurer in Germany. So the interesting thing about that was his number uh, was a perfect fit to the number that I came up with in June of 2021. And the way that I came up with my number was I looked at, at all of Europe. I put everybody on day zero. And I said, what happens to the case fatality rate of COVID as the vaccine rolls out if you put deaths on an 18-day lag from cases, right? So you should not for 18 days, like, um, uh, you shouldn't see a change in cases, like, or you shouldn't see a change in proportion. Um, any, any, uh, let me, uh, let me say that better. Let me say that better because this is a this is a difficult statistics argument to explain um, without a visual. So I'm going to start that over. Um, you have an 18 day period on this statistic when you do deaths over cases from 18 days ago. What happened when they rolled out the vaccines is this statistic went up by 30 percent. It climbed up a mountain. Right, it's the only time during the pandemic when you can really find this number climbing in any substantial way. Case fatality rate it mostly went down and down during the pandemic because older people had been, you know, killed off. Uh, just like you were talking about earlier, you'd have some mean reversion, but the case fatality rate went up. And if you're lagging your cases from 18 days ago, right, you, you know, you're not talking about cases; you're talking about deaths. And so, what it looked like to me was that you had these deaths that were being counted as COVID deaths, but were actually vaccine deaths. And this and these are, this is in several well, countries. I, I did this analysis through the entire whole of Europe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, every single nation and including Russia. And all that together, I came up with a 30% increase. And when I, when I, Looked at that. That would have that was through seven million doses delivered along those countries, by the way, and seven thousand excess deaths. So that would be one in a thousand. But I assume that was mostly elderly 
And then I went and looked at like the the VAERS map and said, you know, what would the proportion sort of be overall? And, and you know, like you have a hefty age age death curve, just like you do for COVID. It's not quite as steep as the COVID curve. But, you know, I said, OK, what, what do I think this curve looks like? And I, you know, you know, you're using your your best judgment in a situation like this as a statistician. But I said, OK, I think 200 to 500 deaths per, per million seems like a reasonable guess given given that climb in the statistic so that would have been you know in u.s terms at the time i remember um computing that and i i said okay uh, I'll, I'll take seventy-two thousand to one hundred eighty thousand, but i think probably pretty close to the middle which would have been you know one hundred twenty thousand. and it, it and and german number popped up and i thought you know that that pretty much confirms it but i do think probably some other deaths trickled in the myocard that you know deaths following myocarditis and those may still be going up right um, this idea that myocarditis, like that, that you can have like a mild case of it, is nonsense. And I think that we shouldn't stop the death count yet. You know, if I'm right, the and, and, and the number is currently at 125,000. You know, what will it be two years from now? Will it be 300,000? You know, I don't know. But I did for a while allow myself to to consider a broader range up up as high as like the 500,000 to Steve Kirsch. Um, yeah, and I don't know why he chose a number that high. I I, I didn't I didn't. Agree with I, I briefly. There was an analysis done by um, my friend Joel Smalley on the Massachusetts data, which which suggested a thousand. But I think I, I back further away from that number again because um, you know looking at at the statistics, I, I have well actually I'll say this: it's because I believe that there's a new variable introduced to my thinking, and I feel like we need to study this variable, and it's a tricky one. And it's one that's going to surprise a lot of people, and some people are going to think I'm a conspiracy theorist for even, you know, uh, imagining it. But uh, I think that people should consider bacterial outbreak and consider the possibility of interplay between bacteria and virus and interplay between bacteria and vaccination. And uh, that's interesting. You know, I actually have a friend who was hospitalized in pretty, uh, you know, pretty bad shape with a lung uh, problem that was diagnosed as pneumonia mm -hmm. and he came up negative to the, with the mm -hmm. COVID test. And this I think happened a month or two after his vaccination. Um, so that's, uh, that's interesting. Um, right. uh, apparently there, there have been other uh, cases like that of bacterial pneumonia piggybacking on uh, lung damage from COVID. Yeah. And you know, um, there's a guy named John Cohen and he had, he had kind of an out there theory about, and, you know, I, I'm, I'm perfectly fine with people exploring out their theories. I, I think it was good that he did. Um, he explored this theory that the Spanish flu was like, you know, brought back from the grave after digging somebody up and, you know, reviving it. Um, but the, the, the thing that struck me about his argument was he, he pointed to the pneumonia data. Um, during the pandemic, what we see with the U.S. pneumonia data, and people call it P&I, like pneumonia and influenza, but the thing is 99% of the deaths are pneumonia. Right. So we shouldn't even think of it as peanut. We should we should point to pneumonia mostly. Now, pneumonia begins to climb in late 2019 in the U.S. And it, and what we've had for the past like three plus years, if we didn't know COVID existed, we would go, oh, my Lord, we have a huge pneumonia pandemic. You know, or pneumonia epidemic or, or whatever, you know, whatever you want to call it. Um, the numbers have been uh, so much higher. And, and when you look at COVID. 
you know, the truth is many of the COVID deaths probably aren't really COVID, right? Somebody fell off a ladder, they tested positive, whatever. Okay, take those out. What, even before you take them out, half of those people had pneumonia. That's what they actually sort of physically died from, right? Um, but then if you take out the people who didn't really have COVID, it's probably much higher. And of course, during the Spanish flu back, you know, 1918, 1920, um, 80% of those people died from pneumonia. You know, pneumonia is the symptom that we should be paying attention to. And, and, and what we have is a pandemic in which we have, you know, maltreated patients. We have stopped giving people as many antibiotics when they get pneumonia. That's crazy. Right? That is, that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems, yeah, I, I agree. It, it does seem that COVID is very hard on the lungs. Uh, you know, I had lost one friend, John Shuck, who was my co-host at False Flag Weekly News. Um, apparently, he was diagnosed with COVID. His lungs were just utterly wrecked. Mm-hmm. Uh, at one point, they said, well, maybe we can keep him alive with a lung transplant. And uh, apparently, that's been the same situation for an awful lot of these people. Of course, that's why they were sticking him on ventilators and things like that, which apparently doesn't work too well. Um, I had COVID twice, and it was pretty darn hard on my lungs. I mean, I think it made them a little worse. Than they were. I already had a little bit of uh, lung a lung issue from uh, having put up fiberglass insulation when I was young without any mask or anything. And it like what that, that decrease in lung function I experienced after that, uh, I would say something similar happened after COVID. Mm-hmm. I mean, I could really feel that it was just really, you know, something nasty was happening in my lungs. I wouldn't be surprised if that fact that COVID sometimes really damages people's lungs, that that then leads to an opportunistic bacterial pneumonia infection. Uh, well, I'm, I'm sorry to hear about your friend. Um, I, I think that we should be studying to figure out, you know, which is the cart and which is the horse. And I'll explain, you know, what changed my thinking and what I think we need to be investigating. Um, I, I worry, actually, that we're being exposed to more bacteria and therefore we are getting a harsher, um, you know, uh, symptomat- uh, symptoms from uh, the virus. And let's remember that, that bacteria taken viruses and sort of, you know, they, they sort of, uh, I don't know, like uh, handle them like a puzzle, uh, maybe a good way to put it. Um, you know, there's, there's a, a lot of interaction between bacteria and viruses. And it may be that um, when only a very few viruses actually really hurt us, right? Like viruses come through us all the time. It's not a big deal. But, you know, there may be some interaction um, at play between uh, coronaviruses and some bacteria. But part of the reason I brought up bacteria is um, seeing the pneumonia and seeing that the pneumonia didn't abate nearly as much as the positive tests abated, right? Like the, the number of COVID deaths during the peaks is higher than the pneumonia deaths, but then you go to the non-peaks and pneumonia deaths are still very high compared to usual. Even, even, even. Right. Just like my friend, my friend who was hospitalized with really bad pneumonia, but came up negative for right. a month after he was injected. Right. And so I have a worry there that there may be something uh, about the vaccines. Um, you know, maybe maybe it's hard on the heart, and maybe that also you know combines with with uh, people's immune systems being weakened from bacteria. And I, I'm you know I'm trying to study this as much as I can, but of course it's difficult to get as much material as you'd like. In the 1950s, uh, there was something called Operation Sea Spray, in which the U.S. Um, Navy you know, um, made a bunch of people sick. 
by spraying down uh, the entire city of San Francisco with this um, pink bacteria. And they, they made it a pink bacteria so that they could, you know, easily see who was exposed. And, and basically, everybody in the city was exposed. And you have this spike in pneumonia. Well, you know, pink, pink bacteria all over San Francisco. It's a good thing they didn't do that in 1967 or they would have triggered a lot of bad trips. <laughs> well, uh yeah, you know, well, we don't know that they didn't do it in 1967. Um, uh, uh, you know, it looks to me like they, there were there were uh, congressional hearings that I looked up and found in the 1970s, and you read through these, and they're discussing these pneumonia spikes that occur in other places around the country, and these places happen to be where you have military bases, Anniston, Alabama, you know, Key West, Florida. And most of them seem to be naval facilities, or at least most of the ones that I, I noted, right? And uh, like QS Florida, I mean, if you wanted to do something further away from like the, the civilian population, that's where you'd do it. And, and uh, you know, what we have is a situation where you could call this bioterrorism defense or biowarfare defense, right? Um, and, and so maybe maybe you could get away with saying this doesn't violate treaties or something like that. But it's still the case that that they're clearly not releasing a lot of information. They still haven't released information about stuff that we know to you know took place during the Korean War, right? So yeah, yeah, the the, bi the BioWare files are are very closely held. And, and Nicholson Baker's book Baseless goes into his uh, decades long crusade to try to break into those files and, and you know use the Freedom of Information Act to pry some of that loose and. It's you know it's just pretty hilarious. It's like a dark comedy reading his book uh, because they won't comply with the, the with FOIA. I mean they, they'll they're 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 holding all that stuff, and it's obvious that they're covering up U.S. Uh, many many U.S. biotechs. Yeah, I'm scrambling to grab a pen. What's the name of the book again? Uh, it's called Baseless. Uh, my what's the subtitle? My my struggle, you know, uh, to, uh, to my struggle to push the Freedom of Information Act or something like that. But yeah, he starts with the Korean War, and then it turns out apparently immediately after Korea, they started a parallel germ warfare program that was run by the CIA. So there's the Pentagon program where they're manufacturing huge quantities of terrible things, and then there's the CIA program where they run around doing these little deniable hits on various mm -hmm. countries. And it seems that that's the main thing that they've done is used the CIA and its friends to do these like economic attacks. Uh, they they take out Eastern Europe's wheat during the Cold War. They they attack uh, Cuba with a mosquito-borne illness that that kills a few hundred people. Things like that. Interesting. Yeah, I I think that that we are in something like a disguised global civil war. Is my opinion. And uh, and you know this is. This is watching a combination of financial moves, um, recognizing that uh, the collective thing that people call the deep state is is not one entity that has you know one set of motivations. Um, I, I think that there is you know watching what's going on in Ukraine, which is both fascinating but but very disturbing. You know we had um, you know in 2021. You know you know we can see. Um, this, this sort of advertising campaign of Ukraine being a sort of like a uh, one of the nations to sort of take control of the cryptocurrency revolution, right? You know, this is years after we've established biolabs there. Then, of course, in comes Russia. You know, it, 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 it's hard to know what exactly is that situation going on there, right? Like, did, did Russia see several things going on and just feel like, gosh, you know, we have to we have to go in there and 
and do something or else we're going to lose our sovereignty at our border, you know, either from bioweapons or from, you know, our currency being subsumed by this new global banking process. And and, I, and I'll just go ahead and say out loud for people who might be listening, I, I, I'm not somebody who says, you know, cryptocurrency, good or bad. I'm sure it's, it's how it's implemented. I, I believe in a decentralized you know, that that we're better off with a decentralized um, entity like Bitcoin, but that there are plenty of of bad and terrifying ways that this could be done. Um, but uh, you know, I and I I don't I don't know I don't claim to know what's go, what's going on in Ukraine, but it just the, the grand sum of evidence makes it look like we're in the middle of a global civil war, and so yeah, and, and a global bio war too, oh, given the evidence absolutely. that the COVID came out of a U.S. A biological attack on China, and I, did, I don't know. Did you catch? There's there have been a, a couple of uh, of new uh, journalists jumping on board. This you know, kind of noticing the evidence in the living, the elephant in the living room evidence that this was the case. Uh, there's the uh, Will Will Jones just published a piece last week uh, at the this. It's a conservative, fairly fairly mainstream sort of libertarian conservative site, the Britain's uh, Daily Skeptic. And uh, he just pointed out that the U.S. government was the original source of this lab leak theory. So he traces the propaganda about the Wuhan lab leak theory, finds that it was first pushed by this neocon wing of the U.S. government. Uh, and, of course, this it shows foreknowledge in so many ways. I mean, starting with the Defense Intelligence Agency oh, memo sure. back in November of 2019 about warning of a terrible pandemic brewing in Wuhan at a time when nobody but the perpetrators could have known about it. And then kind of goes on from there. So in any case, it, yeah, it does look like uh, probably Russia and China and Iran all know that the U S attacked China and yeah. Iran. That's where COVID came from. And, uh, that kind of, you know, no wonder the Russians are paranoid. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, <laughs> I tracked down an insider from a company that was making the lipid nanoparticles for Moderna. And he told me that they, um, that they received the order for the lipid nanoparticles in October of 2019. So, like, like uh, yeah, that, and, and this was um, this was not just lipid nanoparticles; it was good manufacturing practice, GMP lipid nanoparticles. So, you know, there's, and you know, of course, that's the same month. Uh, I think it was like October 5th or October 7th that that the French health minister Agnes Buzin uh, began the paperwork to make hydroxychloroquine no longer OTC to put it on the uh, you know list of poisonous substances. Um, and and so, you know, we see we see all these things that certainly look revealing of the West having a lot of foreknowledge and taking part. We also see um, a number like we see. U.S. billionaires going off to their islands, right? Like I heard that the that the Google founders, you know, just went to their private islands and spent the entire pandemic there. Uh, we had um, New Zealand, right? New Zealand was a place where a lot of billionaires bought homes and could go off to. And it's interesting that the Pacific Rim actually had a spike of uh, what looks like a, a death spike heading into like uh, in 2018, 2019. Maybe, maybe they were already exposed to whatever the biological agent would be, making them a place where you would have more immunity and being a place where billionaires would want to buy homes and go sit it out. And then only then later would they have a pandemic sort of when after people were vaccinated, which might, you know, twist and weaken their immune systems. Um, Something similar seems to have happened with Hawaii. Uh, When you when you talk to people. There are a lot of people who have stories about going uh, to Hawaii uh, on planes in 2018, 2019 and coming back sick. 
And there were, you know, apparently it, it was sort of known uh, amongst people, like people who took frequent vacations there. Um, there were so many of these stories. It could be that Hawaii was exposed earlier, making it a place that would be safer for, for people to go later. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's an interesting theory. It ties in with the idea that this was a big biodefense test, among other things. That is, the purposes that pr- would have included not only trying to slow China's economic rise, and that, of course, is the, the big issue for trying to maintain the uh, U.S. Uh, hegemonic uh, empire, is to keep China's economy under wraps because it's you know, it's going almost 10% per Maybe. year for three decades. Maybe. And it's, I- it's only... Well, that's anyway. That's that's the claim. That's yeah. that's the operating assumption of these people, and and so that's anyway. That would be one purpose, but there could be others as well, including sort of a a, a dry run to see whether with this particular bioweapon, uh, whether whether they the mRNA vaccines would be a good biodefense because you know you can create these vaccines very quickly uh, to rapidly mutating viruses, and if if you know whoever is doing the bioattack has a leg up on the mrna technology to protect against it and they, they can just keep you know hitting their enemies then and the blowback won't bother them as much because they've got their uh their little secret weapon so one of the reasons that they really wanted to do this huge mrna test is because the u.s empire has a huge lead in mrna technology as opposed to its enemies and that they want to be able to use that to uh, you know, not only in this particular pandemic, but perhaps in future ones, and perhaps in worse ones. So they they can't let you know hydroxychloroquine uh, take over, and they've got to have their excuse to use these mRNA vaccines in a mass experiment. Okay, I I do think that experimentation definitely has something to do with it. I I think that that there are too many possibilities to speculate. In in particular, I think that gene editing drives may be a big part of this. Uh, when you look at um, I can't remember his name, but when Biden came into office, there was a guy from uh, Harvard who was sort of uh, I can't remember if he became part of the administration for not. And the reason he might not have is because he was part of that whole like did like Epstein came and was funding people, you know, in Cambridge. Um, and that was uh, MIT Media Labs and MIT Media Labs. It was a number of those people who were involved in the gene editing drive research and gene editing drive is right. is. You know, it's a use of Casper. It is something that that would Casper crispin It is something that um, where you could possibly be changing DNA in a population. And if that is if that is considered like an, a next level bio warfare, then you could have this competition between the, the U.S. and China. However, however, um, I, I, I actually wonder the degree to which China is really a separate entity from the U.S. And. Uh, you know, and, and and whether or not we we could control. I mean, you know, if if that's the actual problem, um, you know, could three assassinations completely shut down a program? Right. Like the U.S. has always. Uh, you know, well, I say the U.S. U.S. Uh, let's just say the West has always been able to keep Iran um, from you know going that next step with uh, development of nuclear weapons program because you can assassinate three people, and we have. Right. If, if you if you can keep tabs on the three people that you would need to assassinate, you can very often control leading edge technology in a country. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sure they use that as, as one of their uh, tools, of course, whether it's successful or not. And, you know, whether they even know for sure whether they've been successful is another yeah. question. I, one, of the, one of the things that I've come to believe about China over the past few years or you know, really the past couple of decades is I think that China's 
um, development and technology is overstated. Uh, I think it's only a couple of areas where they are particularly well developed. Their their economy is, has not grown from being a leading edge technology center where they are producing new products that then the world consumes. It's been from being a low um, low um, cost port of manufacture. I think that the reason that China's economy has caught up as much as it has is because the West has suffocated its own new technology. The West has invested and invested and invested in centralizing technology, technology for surveillance. You know, and, and whatever we say about China's surveillance, they're constantly using our technologies, right? Technologies that the U.S. develops or that the West develops and then just, you know, making more of them, right? Um, so I, I see China as as you know, having a lot, being a lot of the glove of the West and that it, it's hard to really craft one story and that we we shouldn't try to fully understand that narrative given that, you know, given what, I mean, yeah, the, the West, J.P. Morgan um, funded part of the Bolshevik revolution, right, to control who who won out amongst the... Well, that was probably probably part of an Anglo uh, approach to you know damage oh, Russia, well, right? Certainly. I mean, it, was, it was basically t- trying to certainly. Well, Russia. the State Department funded Mao, and it's not even hard to find that. Right. You know, we don't talk about it in the history class, but you know, you, it doesn't take long to find that on Wikipedia. Um, you know, the, the U.S. State Department funded Mao over Chiang Kai Shek, and they had this like terrible excuse story for it, which was that oh, we were trying to get the money to both of them. Well, why would you give money to both of them, right? Like, what, what, what's actually going on here? It, it just, like, it was, they actually made it sound like, oh, it was an accident. We gave it to Mao first, and then he leaked that we gave it to him, and it offended Chiang Kai-shek. But, yeah, come on. You know, um, the, the U.S. The U.S. really... Yeah, and that, that strikes me strange, though, because I, I understand why they would try to hobble Russia with the Bolshevik Revolution. But once World War II is over, and Russia is a pretty formidable adversary... Uh, and it's you know communist. Why would they want China to go communist too? Well, if they can that control the dictator at the intuitive. top, right? You know, Mao was somebody who took money from the cigarette companies. You know, he was somebody who, um, you know, there are too many relationships that look like the West doing business with Mao to ignore. And here's an example of one. Um, you know, uh, that Tibet. You know, the 13th Dalai Lama was somebody who was, by the way, he was working with some Russians, and his goal was to decentralize power in Tibet to make it harder for China to take over Tibet. Well, uh, when he passes, who's the next, um, you know, Dalai Lama, the 14th Dalai Lama, well, he's not Tibetan, he's Chinese. Not only is he Chinese, but Mao got to select some of his tutors. Right. The the one that we claim is is sort of the, the you know, leader in exile of Tibet. Well, he was not even the head of state in Tibet. Right. Um, the the current the current Dalai Lama was somebody whose brother was working with the CIA and who, you know, told, like sent cables to Beijing saying we support China rolling in. You know, when he was in Lhasa, he was like, we support, you know, the, the communist army coming in and taking over Tibet. Um, he was not he was not the head of state of Tibet at the time. Um, then further, when we brought him over, um, he, you know, we, we had like 700 llamas over here and 600 of them trained for like paramilitary operation Colorado. And this is all in the CIA reading room. It's all, you know, released files since then. And then we just airdropped them in to be slaughtered by the communist armies. So we, we basically... Um, you know, helped the, you know, it, it, it appears that the U.S. and communist China together sort of baited the llamas into self-extinction. So, you know, when, 
it couldn't have been just just uh, a, a mistake by you know clumsy policy by the Americans. Well, airdrop six hundred llamas in to take on the communist army. <laughs> it sounds like the Bay of Pigs situation, but that I don't think the Bay of Pigs was a deliberate fiasco. I think it was just oh, this, a is, fiasco. this is much worse than the Bay of Pigs. Six six hundred anybody, you would not airdrop into you know a nation being inundated by a large Asian communist force. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe they taught them how to stare at goats before they <laughs> dropped them. I mean, these are reincarnated llamas, right? They should be uh, really uh, good at this. this no, but seriously, I, I didn't know that history. What, what are the best? What are the best sources on that? Um, uh, the the Colorado. Uh, I know that I read that out of the CIA reading room maybe eight to ten years ago, but um, you know, don't trust me on the exact date uh, when those files were released. Um, the the fact that the the Dalai Lama's brother was working with the CIA. I don't know in that one. I don't know specifically where I even found that one. I'd have to go back through my notes. Um, but the, you know, the fact that Mal, um, his, that he selected the Dalai Lama's tutors, um, that is in Mal's own diary notes. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, Tibet would have been a point of contention, of course, between, you know, with China asserting its supposed, you know, right to have Tibet part of China. And then with theoretically, one would think, that the Americans would be doing their best to cause trouble for China by way of Tibet, the same way they're doing that in Xinjiang right now. But causing trouble doesn't necessarily always succeed to, you know, it's like, just like with Ukraine now, I mean, you know, they're trying to cause trouble for Russia, but ultimately Russia's probably going to end up with at least the Donbass and probably the Black Seashore as well. And I don't think that's because the American empire is in bed with Putin. I think they're just screwing up. Mm-hmm. I, I... I don't. I, I still don't know how to read that situation. Um, it, specifically, I, I know that Russia has uh, Russia spends an enormous part of its military and military budget getting as far as it did. Whereas for the U.S., my understanding is it's like a drop in the bucket. So I, I don't know what that means for the future, but I do know that some of the territory that Russia took is territory that sort of backs Russian government. But it's a complicated situation. I still haven't. I still haven't decided what it means that we have these you know, Ukrainians all over U.S. government in very key positions. Like, it feels like there is something that's been moving toward this for many years. And the planning seems to be on a level of top secret that that I can't begin to speculate about. But, you know, it's, it's a lot of people in high positions. And, and then we, we even look at this, this bio-warfare program, and, you know, we've got Peter Gashik and Ralph Barrick, and these are Ukraine, you know, aren't, aren't these all Ukrainian names? Yeah, they do sound kind of Ukrainian, don't they? Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Of course, the, the many of the neocons come from the Pale of Settlement, which is basically Ukraine. That's their ancestral homeland. And there's a lot of speculation that part of what's going on here is uh, is cleaning out Ukraine, depopulating Ukraine, so that the uh, Zionists can have their real ancestral homeland, because that's, of course, where they really come from, not Palestine. I, Richard Cook, who was on the first hour, seems to give some credence to that theory. Well, you know, so I, I've, I've heard of this theory, and you know, like I, I think that it is very possible that, that you know, um, Judaism, I think Christianity, I think, I think any religion in the world that is that has enough power to be a honeypot um, may have infiltrators. That's the way I view it. So the the possibility that um, that a group of people infiltrated, uh, you know, Judaism, and we know that like a group of uh, was it descendants of the Orange Horde? Uh, was it Kublai Khan descendants? 
who are of course still Genghis Khan descendants who who um, were around the Black Sea, did they uh, 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 become Jews? And, and I know that there are people who who talk about this Kazarian Mafia story, right? And I don't know what to think about that. I haven't looked deeply enough into it. I do know that there were some historical converts, though. But there is also the possibility of infiltrating religions historically. And so I, I don't I don't want to draw too many conclusions, but there is something there is something weird about the history and the way that it's disguised. And I'll point this out too. In in the 20th century, we have um, we have several very large um, uh, genocides. And, you know, obviously everybody points to the Jews in the middle of Europe, primarily Germany, but also you know Poland, wherever. Um, but we, we had the Holodomor in Ukraine, and people and people forget how large that was. That was a murder of was it 10 million? I mean, I, I know it's very, yeah, I've seen all kinds of it, estimates. It, yeah. 10 minutes. Some have actually said more than that. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I don't know the number. I don't know if we, if we can ever know the number. When you, and, and others have said considerably less, of course. And, and yeah. And, yeah. and, you know, you know, maybe we'd find out it was 500,000. Maybe we'd find out it was 10 million. Uh, maybe we'd find out, you know, somewhere in between who knows. Um, but the point is that, that you do have these events that have some sort of a weird common thread where you have the U S coming over and fiddling with things, right? I mean, you know, let, let's face it, you know, the U.S. is a lot of the buildup of Hitler, right? Hitler's youth were actually coming to the U.S. to train. A lot of people don't know this, that there were camps over here. You know, there were that, um, you know, we, of course, we had Harriman Bank. We have, you know, a lot of corporations uh, supporting uh, Hitler that that weren't even punished, you know, afterward. But, but specific, you know, um, uh it, it, there was a lot of U.S. involvement. Now we have a lot of the U.S. involvement in Ukraine, and this is one of the other places where there was uh, a very large genocide. Maybe the, the, only, you know, the, the only larger ones were, you know, Russia and and um, you know, communist China. But we cert- the West certainly had major, major influences in what took place there. So, and of course, there, there's the Bengal fam- famine uh, during World War II. That's right up there with these others too. And and I don't know. Where the British, British basically deliberately starved uh, many millions in, yeah. in India. Yeah, um, and that wouldn't shock me. Uh, you know, Bengal wasn't that where um, we were getting the opium that was being shipped to China to sell to get back the silver that that preceded the opium war. Yeah, I think it was. I believe that was Bengal. That was, was part of that. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. and yeah. and yeah, it, it would not shock me if these have have been used as sort of long term trauma tragedy events where um you know those who who run the western corporations so i you know i don't want to say the west because i i just don't believe this should be plastered on everybody right once the corporations got free they started behaving differently than the rest of europe right you know people are you know most people you know don't believe in and support just going around the world and building slave colonies europe had eliminated slavery and then suddenly you have you know uh, i mean again you know, the dutch people almost rioted when they found out that the Dutch East India Company was involved in some of this stuff, you know, uh, information scandals would come back in the newspapers. Um, but, you know, once the corporations uh, could do what they wanted free of the geography and the values of their communities, you had new stuff going on. And whatever this stuff is, it seems to ramp up over the decades, centuries, and I think we need to go back and draw in a lot of that history and figure out, you know, you know, who really had power here and there. Um, and, 
you know, maybe this will have connections with sort of, you know, the secret populations like the the, the set of conspiracy theorists who talk about the, you know, uh, converts of the Jews who may be trying to control them, you know, who, who weren't Jews to begin with. Um, it, maybe we'll find out some of these things, but one way or another, corporate power changed the way populations could control each other, and that we should have no doubt about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's right. Well, uh, get, you know, getting back to the, that first topic that we started with on the debate about the vaccine deaths and excess mortality, um, you know, you did say that your estimate that there have been quite a few vaccine deaths. Uh, is based on partly the fact that you saw this uptick in deaths right after uh, the vaccine rollout that were attributed as COVID deaths. And that does fit, actually, with, I believe, that Alex Berenson has shown these studies that indicate that these uh, injections do actually uh, harm people. That is, statistically, you're more likely to die or be hospitalized with COVID during the first month after your injection and then quite rapidly into the second month, you have that protection that they like to talk about. And that lasts for another five months after your first injection starts to then wear off pretty fast. So that first month, even the official statistics show that people are actually uh, worse off during that first month after the injection. And I think that when the statisticians are actually not counting those people as uh, vaccinated, when you die like shortly after you've been injected, they uh, somehow claim that you're not vaccinated until something like a month later or something like that. So so in any case, uh, despite um, the possibility that some of that is true, Unza's larger argument that you don't see among the working age people, which is, you know, that's not where most of these deaths are happening. Most of the deaths, of course, are happening with the old people. But with the working age people, we don't seem to see any uptick at all uh, in these European countries, whether for COVID or uh, when the vaccines come out, that is 2020, 2021, uh, 2022, uh, all three years in many of these European countries, and it turns out they're all the non-obese, uh, least obese countries, you don't see any, you actually see a, a significant decrease in working age mortality overall, and then you see no effect whatsoever happening in 2021 when the vaccine rolls out. And so, how would that mean that if indeed uh, this vaccine is killing a statistically significant number of Americans, is it because of our obesity rate, or why is this? Ha- why would this be happening? Mm-hmm. And statistically, it could conceivably be happening um, in the U.S., but it looks like it's really not happening in any numbers that get picked up whatsoever in the overall right. mortality stats sure. in many of these European okay. countries. So yeah, I, I can see. Um why he's trying to compare these populations. Uh, one thing I should think we should step back and we should remember that this has military operation written all over it in many ways. And, and we have, I mean, we even have Pfizer saying that they're not liable in court because their decisions are being made by the military. You know, we're, we're learning that um, we're learning that the vaccine manufacturers themselves don't know the ingredients. All point to, okay. you know, a, a shroud of secrecy that is very deep. And I don't even think that we should assume that we know that people in Europe are being injected with the same things as the people in the U.S., though I do think that early on for the mRNA rollout that it's almost certainly true, um, because when I looked for the same effect, uh, that 30 percent 
bump in case fatality rate that we saw early on, which would be the elderly population, of course, in Europe who got the you know, earlier vaccinations. When I looked for that in the U.S., I didn't see it. But what I saw was this weird, strange, curved U-shape in the case fatality rate that you don't see anywhere else in any nation, any time during the pandemic. And so I looked and I found a similar U-shape in our testing rates during the first three weeks of vaccine rollout. And you can find this if you go to um, Our World and Data, if you look at the uh, testing rates per population unit. So I think that it may have also been true in the U.S., but disguised. But then, you know, we don't know what happens after that. So is, is it obesity rate? Well, there is a possibility there. And here's one reason why it's a possibility is um, when, when you look at the symptoms that people have from COVID, like uh, eight of the first nine symptoms are things that are associated with obesity in general, right? And, and there's, um, you know, I've seen good speculation that there is something that goes on with SARS-CoV-2 where it affects the age-rage pathway, which, um, which is a pathway that is associated with diabetes. And of course, we have seen diabetes itself in the virus system as like a sudden onset symptom from you know post-vaccination, and that's a very strange result. So it is possible that it is affecting people uh, differently according to glycemic index or something like that. In the Society of Actuary data that came out like six or seven months ago, um, you know, people talked about like Ed Dowd showed you know that that quarter three you know bump in, in mortality. Um, I went in and did a, a, a deeper dive, and, and one of the things that I noticed was. Um, in large corporations, you barely had any bump in mortality during that quarter amongst those young people. It, the, the further you got from large corporations, the greater the increase. And that kind of startled me, right? Like, what, what does that mean? Is that an association? You know, is there something like uh, a correlation between, um, you know, health effects, uh, you know, health status and large corporations also is, is there a correlation between large cor cor uh, corporations and people who, you know, thought or knew to get a, vac a fake vaccine card? Because, you know, that's a piece of all this that people don't talk about, it's the fake vaccine cards. I have, I have plenty of friends who, who told me they got them. And, and you know, um, I had uh, I was in a discussion with parents of athletes, you know, college athletes and, you know, um, talking about who got fake vaccine mm, Yeah, cards. me too, actually. Yeah, I mean, we all, right? Like <laughs> yeah. everybody... But uh, personally, I, I wouldn't carry a fake vaccine card. I, I just carry a parody vaccine card. Uh, I got the I was vaxxed at the Jonestown and Jonestown uh, pharmacy and uh, a 9/11, you know, 2020 thing, 2020, whatever things like that. So if I ever show that to people, of course, it's just a joke. I'm not actually committing a crime. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Tell Fair it to enough. the judge. Um, yeah, and that, that sounds like a great idea, to be honest. But um, the it worked in San Francisco restaurants. <laughs> um, the the fact that in 2020, 2021, 2022, and we can see this uh, in John Bodwin's data. I don't know if you've seen him yet. He's the guy in Massachusetts who who um, you know filed suit, got the 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 death certificate data for the entire state for all these years, right? For the past few years, every death certificate, and, and went through them by hand and compiled statistics. 
the thing that that is striking is how much the pandemic changes from 2022 to 2021. The age range that people are dying in changes dramatically, right? 2020, the average age was you know, in in the 80s, like you know, it was very high, and and uh, people are dying more for respiratory illnesses. 2021, it shifts more toward cardio illness in Massachusetts, and the the average age of death dropped by like six years. Is this like Delta got the blame for this, right? Um, you know, pr- probably, yeah. Um, you know, what one where like, I, I'm not even sure I believe the the stories of the variants. To be honest, I think that, uh, and this is part of the reason why I'm looking more into the bacteria is to see if we can tell um, with uh, there's different sequencing techniques that you use, and and some of them can can tell you whether or not you're looking for a fragment that has continuity with, you know, maybe a bacterial species. And, uh, and so I have somebody looking into that right now for me, but, um, you know, I'm, I, I think there's shenanigans still that, that haven't been uncovered and more variables than we even thought, even than, than people who were like interested in going down the conspiracy theory pathways and, and looking at things. I think this is going to be kind of like the U S going into the middle East after nine 11, where people go, aha, it's because of the oil. And it wasn't. We didn't take it all. And people go, aha, it was because of the rare earth metals. And no, we didn't take the rare earth metals. And then people go, aha, it's because of drug trafficking, human, you know, uh, human trafficking. And yeah, sure, we, we, we got some of that market. You know, there are definitely those stories out there, right? But we didn't spend six and a half trillion dollars doing that. We spent six and a half trillion dollars showing everyone else in the world that we will come bloody your nose if you consider using gold. That's a, interesting. Well, like, I guess I, said, I, wasn't, I thought Saddam Hussein had been using the euro. That was his crime. Um, well, I, possibly uh, that that's possible. But the euro is still, um, I would call it a proxy dollar. I would say all these years. I mean, I, I don't think anybody who could be taken seriously in economics really thought that the, that Europe was, you know, uh, particularly independent of the U.S. in the sense that the U.S. still ran all the world shipping lanes. Right. And and, you know, the, the reserve currency in the banks was the dollar, you know, yeah, the euro was creeping up, but so long as everybody viewed it as a proxy dollar, that's all that mattered. Um, but Brexit. Well, the U.S. is going to make sure it stays a proxy dollar by doing things like taking sure. out Saddam if he tries to take euros. But one, one of the things that people should consider and, and think about in terms of, of you know, the, the euro's strength relative to the dollar is Brexit probably wasn't really a populist movement. It was probably actually um, a, an act by the oligarch level, you know, the, the elites of the elites. And knowing that their mandarins, you know, the mere elites who weren't oligarchs, wouldn't go along with it, but probably knew that they needed to divorce themselves from the rest of Europe before everything hit the fan that's hitting the fan right now. That's been my that's been my wow. opinion. That wouldn't surprise me. <laughs> I'd put that on the list of the uh, conspiracy theories, quote unquote, that could very likely be true. Well, thank you, Matthew Crawford. I think we at the end, I do hear some bumper music in the background somewhere there. So uh, I really uh, love your substack, the Rounding the Earth substack. Highly recommended, and keep up the good work. Thanks. Take care. Okay, you too. Bye. That's Matthew Crawford. I'm Kevin Barrett of TruthJihad.com and KevinBarrett.substack.com. Back with more great guests telling it the way it is next week. Same time, same channel. See you then.